whoever that is in the back holding the lights up doesn't have to stay there for the whole rest of the evening just so the lights stay up. It would be a rather inconvenient thing to have to do. Hopefully someone's helping you. Become a permanent fixture in the meditation hall. And the lights up. <laughs> you need to drape some around you so you blend in. So when I thought about what I'd like to talk about tonight in the short time I had to think about what I would talk about, what came to me is to talk about mindfulness of the body. It's a, um, a, a theme or certainly awareness of the body is something that's often up for us at this time of year. I'm sure you don't need to be reminded that it's still relatively the new year and people make all kinds of um, New Year resolutions and are often about, I want to exercise more, I want to eat more healthily, I want to lose weight. These are really common themes and they're all to do with our relationship to the body. How many people have ideas something like those three I mentioned? Might be a formal resolution, but just like to exercise more, eat more healthily, lose weight. How many people here? Quite a few. It's, it's a common theme for, for us, isn't it? I know it's always in the back of my mind about how I could do a little better in taking care of my body, and it's an important thing. But we often have a very distorted view of the body or really constricted ideas about how to go about taking care of the body and really having a balanced, a healthy, a skillful, a mindful relationship to the body. I'm, I was also nudged in this direction. I watched a little bit of the Golden Globes last night, that award show, where so much emphasis, of course, is on how you look, especially for the women. And uh, so also for the men, but certainly the women in their dresses, and they're all as thin as rakes, of course. And I loved it. They had two women presenters who I thought did a great job, very funny, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. Um, I didn't see the whole thing, but what I saw, they were funny, but I did see them exchange this line where Tina Fey said something like, talking about the titles of the movies that are up for nomination, yeah, getting ready for this event to fit into this dress, that was the Hunger Games. <laughs> and then Amy Poehler responded by saying, yeah, and afterwards, Life of Pi. <laughs> going to make up for the denial. But... I thought that was just so uh, typical of how we relate to the body. We go through these phases of denial or abuse of the body and then indulgence. And most of us swing between those two and it's really hard to find uh, a good balance and to actually tune in in a, in, a, in a direct way with the body and be able to respond to the body in this way that, that's actually appropriate. The Buddhist attitude around the body is, of course, not how you look, look in a fitted gown with six-inch heels, but that the body is our vehicle for awakening, that we need to take care of the body. We need to have as healthy a body as we can, given our limitations and conditioning, age, etc. But we need to actually use the body, come to a relationship with the body that supports our awakening. And by that, I mean a sense of freedom a sense of ease, a sense of balance in our lives. The Buddha said something like, 
within this fathom-long body, and a fathom basically just the length of a body, within this fathom-long body is everything you need for awakening. The whole world exists in this body. So there was always a sense of turn towards the body, turn inward, just as we did in the meditation, and see what's actually here and come to a wise relationship so that the mind can open to whatever freedom is to be found there. So I wanted to start by looking at the big picture of this relationship to the body. All of us, however many years ago, began with the union of an egg and sperm. However, all the different ways, I think that's still the basic thing that happens. I know it's changed a lot these days how that <laughs> gestation might happen, but some, somewhere basically there's that kind of union that happens. And then subsequent to that, there's just this process of division and separation, individuation, beginning with cells. But of course, it just grows and keeps manifesting until um, a baby is born. Even with the birth, there's still that connection to the mother often, the umbilical cord. There's still that connection, and then that's cut. And for the baby, it's usually what? You know, what have I gotten myself into? I was floating in this warm environment, protected. You know, again, this is just not always, but most of the time somewhat the case. Floating in this warm sea, and then you're ejected out into the cold, cruel world. And someone, pick, I don't know if they even do this anymore, picks you up by the feet and slaps you. And it's cold and dark, and I mean, the cold and bright, and, and all this stuff is sort of thrown at you. And so it's, wow! What am I, what's happening here? And then hopefully at some point there's a breast or something similar and then it's, ah, you know. So the early days are a lot, you know, going between ah and ah, ah and ah, you know, <laughs> greed and aversion. And we're not that far distant from that even today, are we? You know, the mind just moving. I don't like this, I want that. I like, don't like this, I want that just to see how that sort of animal nature still um, is here in us. And for the baby, this, this individuation is a process. Because again, if you've watched a very young baby, they have to discover, oh, oh, ow, that's my finger. And, you know, I can actually move my body to get things. And, and we start using our body to achieve our aims, to actually get what we want in life, to get gratification. So we learn that sense of individual individuation and become an agent in the world. And this solidifies the sense of separation because we start to see, oh, I'm in here and you're out there and I can use my body to basically get what I want from the world out there. And so this sense of self and other um, gets strengthened. We lose that sense of connection, of oneness that all of us had to some extent very early on. And so it, it's, it's not long after that that uh, through the separation, all kinds of movements of mind can grow up, of loneliness, of fear, of comparison, of being accepted or not accepted. Um, and the body becomes most clearly the thing that we identify with, me, I'm my body. Uh, and we feel this relationship to the body, but 
it's kind of like looking at the body and we have all of these fears and hopes and doubts and judgments about the body. Um, there can be a sense of shame about the body. We learn that too. And again, that's very archetypal from the story of Adam and Eve being thrown out of the garden, the paradise, uh, and covering themselves up in shame. And that's carried through in our culture. And so through just our own internal process and then how the world relates to us, family, friends, peers, schooling, in our athletic pursuits, you know, how we look and dress, we develop this relationship to the body. And we can um, train the body to, to be and act a certain way, you know, in athletic pursuits or music, musical pursuits or whatever. Sometimes we ignore the body. It's like we don't want to know. It's, it's, it's foreign territory. Um, we can abuse the body or glorify the body. We can judge or compare our body to other people's bodies and often feel it's not good enough. Often we can be obsessed with the body, how my body is. It's, not, it's too much this and not enough that. What's interesting is these ideas about the body are often not accurate they can be actually very distorted. We don't like what we see, but we're not actually seeing clearly. Um, this is emphasized, again, I, I, I speak up, relate as a woman to going into changing rooms where they have very bright light and three-way mirrors, and they're basically designed to show clearly every flaw you might have, and trying to um, try on bathing suits is like just a, a torture session for most women. I know it is for me. It's just because there's these ideals that all of us have in our mind of, of what we should look like, that, that even subliminally we've taken in about these kind of ideals. And it's always thinner, younger, different than who we actually take ourselves to be, who we feel ourselves to be. The trouble with these ideals and these images is that they're basically made up. They're basically a kind of fiction most of the time. I mean, you know, there are this very small percentage of people maybe who actually look like that. But even the magazine images you see, what I hear these days is that 90% or some huge percentage of the images that you see in magazines, especially fashion magazines, are photoshopped. Even the gorgeous people don't look like that. They've also been, you know, thinned and stretched and, and airbrushed so they look smooth and wrinkle-free and unblemished. So here we are in this terrible position of comparing ourselves to something that doesn't exist. And this can go on and deepen. But all of us, whether, you know, even if we're not consciously doing that, we have this relationship or idea of our body, of who we are, that's very much based on, again, the body and how it functions, what we're able to do, you know, size, our shape, our athletic ability. And it can be a shock when that sense of ourselves, even if it's a positive sense, is um, challenged. <laughs> The day we got cell phone reception out at Spirit Rock, that was a sad day. We didn't <laughs> used to get cell phone reception, but here we are. So this is a piece from a book I really like by one of my favorite teachers, Larry Rosenberg. It's 
It's called Living in the Light of Death. That's the title of the book. And he just looks at our relationship to aging and illness and eventually dying and, and how we relate skillfully to this. But this is a first-person account of what happened to him in this realm of self-identity around the body. I am a person who takes very good care of himself. I do yoga most morning, I take long vigorous walks, I meditate a great deal, and I am careful about food supplements and the food that I eat. He's our classic person that I was just talking about earlier. Almost three years ago, when I was 63, I was on the subway in Boston, coming back from a trip to the dentist. I comfort myself with the thought that I may have looked a little peaked from my dental work. I was standing there holding on to the metal rail when a young woman seated in front of me smiled and stood up and gave me her seat. I didn't realize at first quite what was happening. I thought she was getting off at the next stop, but that stop went by and the next and I started to realize, wait a minute, a young woman just gave me her seat on the subway. <laughs> My mind started racing. I wanted to say to her, you've got it all wrong. I, gi I get up and give my seat to you. I've been giving up subway seats all my life. But apparently, from her standpoint, this looked appropriate. She was a young, vigorous, healthy woman, and I, it seemed, looked like a man who needed to sit down. <laughs> All my years of doing yoga, eating good food, and taking long walks were wasted. <laughs> I looked my age anyway. Next time it would be, hey, Grandpa, how'd you like a seat? Or sit down, old timer, let me help you with those packages. My self-image as a youthful, bouncy, older man, an image I didn't even know that I had, was smashed to pieces. This was not a bad experience. It was actually good. A young woman made a courteous gesture, and I got to take a load off my feet. It was what I did with it before my awareness returned and I had a good laugh at myself that mattered. It was a modern-day rite of passage, my initiatory moment that let me know I was in a new category. It shattered my self-image. That kind of thing can happen at any moment. Because however we look, it's relative, you know, to those around us. And we can have these concepts that we don't even realize are there until something comes up to actually shake it. And it can really be disturbing to see we've held on to something that's changed, as these things inevitably do, um, that we've had some idea or image of ourselves that perhaps isn't true anymore. And our practice is, can we be with the truth of things with how things actually are. This is more difficult than it might seem because so much of this happens on, on deep levels. I read an article recently by a doctor on what's called body image. This is Dr. Christian Jensen, Jessen. And he says, body image is a term that has come to mean our mind's eye image of our physical experience in contrast with the outer image as rated by an unbiased observer. Most would think that these two correlate substantially, but studies have shown the overlap to be astonishingly low at 5%. So 5% correlation between what we think of our body, our body image, and what an 
unbiased outside observer would think. 5%. It's his body image that is most closely related to psychological factors and clinical conditions, conditions like eating disorders, depression, and low self-esteem. So we really don't know. It's very distorted. If we're just going by our ideas about ourselves and trying to compare them to these images that we get from the media, from society, etc., and it's a cause of a great deal of suffering. As he said, all of these distortions that lead to eating disorders like anorexia, and I've even heard now there's bigorexia. You know, it's not big enough, especially young men can really get obsessed with wanting to be muscle, you know, build up their muscles. It, it's just sad to hear. And so again, there can be this going back and forth of, of not really knowing the body, denying the body, abusing the body, because we don't really know the body, really understand the body. And so our practice here is to get to know the body in this way that's skillful or helpful. Meditation can be a really profound tool for shifting that relationship, but it can also lead to a dissociation from the body because of our ideas about meditation, because we have, again, assumptions about meditation and what meditative experience should look like. And so we can use even our meditation practice to disconnect. Again, here's a piece from Reginald Ray, who's a Tibetan teacher that I found in the Shambhala Sun. Buddhist meditation as practiced in the West frequently suffers from a profound disembodiment. Often we meditate from the neck up, as floating heads completely cut off from the life of our bodies and our physical experience in the world. We meditate in this, world, in this way because we believe, often without realizing it, that the ideal meditative state should somehow be devoid of the pain, complexity, ambiguity, and physicality, in other words, the full embodiment of our natural human condition. You may object that the Buddha taught a Dhamma whose goal was to sh show the way out of suffering. Quite true. But often in our Western practice of Buddhism, we mistake the goal for the path seeing the Buddhist statement of the goal as a description of how we should go about meditating. Many of us, when we sit down to practice, do so with a longing for quiet and peace. No problem. But then our meditation becomes an exercise in trying to attain such a state. It's here where our problems begin. If we are experienced and skilled enough, perhaps we have figured out how to meditate so as to remove ourselves from the pain, uncertainty, and groundlessness of our lives and enter into a much more satisfying, unambiguous state of mind that we identify as the meditative state. What could possibly be wrong with this? The problem is that, in this approach, we are expressing and strengthening the profound dualism that has afflicted Western culture since at least the early Christian world of St. Paul. The view of meditation as disembodiment involves not only our idea that we meditate to remove ourselves from the dirt and detritus of our habitual mental states. More subtly, it is our mental image of an ideal, disembodied state that we, perhaps unconsciously, hold up before ourselves every time we sit down to practice. 
This may be based on a memory of a state experienced in our practice or with a respected teacher something we have, or something we have read and heard. No matter what specific practice we may be using, this mental image, whether conscious or unconscious, is guiding and directing our meditation. It will limit how we are able to engage and how much we are able to experience, and it will restrict what we are able to see. So I found that fascinating um, because it does point to something that I, I see quite often and sometimes even see in myself, that I have an idea about what I want out of meditation and it's to get away from this. Whatever this is, this current agitation or problem or physical experience. And so we can use our meditation to have this kind of escape out of the present moment. And again, this, the, we need to bring skillful means to this because meditation can be a really valuable way to find peace and ease. But we can't do it at the expense of being with what is. And so this bringing together of um, a, a sense of the possibility of meditation as a resource for us to nourish ourselves, to bring calm and quiet and balance and ease into our lives. But we do it through our current moment experience by landing in it completely, not denying it. And this tension or this dynamic is something that we need to really be aware of as we develop this as a meditation practice. So our practice is to connect very directly with this moment, usually through the body. We obviously pay attention to the mind. Meditation is the work of the mind, and we're using the mind to know the body, but the mind is so fleeting, changes so quickly, is so quicksilver, is so unreliable, that it's really helpful to develop this wise relationship to the body that's not out of memory, it's not a visual image, it's not projection, it's not our idea of the body, but as it actually is. So it's this seeing clearly of what our experience of the body is in the present moment. As I said earlier, the body really is this vehicle for awakening. We need to bring it into our mindfulness practice. And the very definition of mindfulness is knowing what's happening and basically having a non-judgmental or a non-contentious uh, relationship to that experience. So we start to use the body to, under, to, to undertake this exploration. And of course the body is not just this sort of physicality. It's often how we know what's happening through our emotional life that even though, again, it, it, it um, very much a, a part of the mental functioning, we know what we're feeling through the body. M emotions and moods and even thoughts have an impact in the body. So we start to turn our attention to this direct experience of the body and look at some of these assumptions that we may have had and perhaps weren't aware of, like Larry Rosenberg spoke about. Can we make friends with the body? Can we have this friendly, accepting, supportive relationship with our bodies? That will actually help deepen. Otherwise, 
there will be suffering. We will suffer if we don't come into this kind of more skillful relationship. As what uh, some of the things I read said, there's been a history in our culture of denying the body. In Christianity, there's all kinds of practices of asceticism and, and denial of whether it's starvation, even flagellation, those kinds of things to prove one's devotion or um, uh, as penalties for sins. In the Buddhist tradition, that same kind of background is there. You know the story of the life of the Buddha when he left his home life and began his quest for awakening. He undertook years of very extreme ascetic practices and actually found that they weren't helpful. He gave them up and said, this is not a skillful way to relate the body. I need to take food, I need sustenance, I need to have enough energy to practice. So he discovered or taught what he called the middle way between indulgence and between asceticism. But there is still a a strain of um, asceticism in Buddhism. And it's really important that we don't take that on as punishment or denying unskillfully. Um, you know, there's a, there's a strong thread of renunciation, so it's certainly not about indulgence, but it is this balance, the middle way. Once we start to pay attention to the body, and many of you may already know this through other means, just through your experience, through other body practices that you've done, the body is amazing, isn't it? I mean, if you just stop for a moment to think about all of the things the body does, all of the things it's monitoring and adjusting and the secretions it's making and the balances in all the different systems that it's doing without us, fortunately, having control over that. I think we would screw it up if we could have control over it the way we often do. And it's just doing, it's taking care of us. It's doing all of this stuff, um, the way the body repairs itself. It is just amazing what the body can do. And so there's this huge source of information um, that we can get from the body. And meditation really shows us that. As we come in contact very deeply with the body, it's like this whole world gets revealed. And there's a sense of coming home through the meditation that many of us haven't, haven't been able to access any other way. The body gives us information, and yes, of course, on the level of emotions showing up in the body, but even deeper than that, in a way that science is only just starting to begin to understand. I, f- I found this quote, it was in an, and something else I was reading, where Thomas and Edison, Thomas Edison, the scientist, said something like, the chief function of the body is to carry the brain around. And that's such a scientific point of view, you know, people who live from the head up, and it's the life of the mind, and the body is just this thing that functions to support the life of the mind and, and, and whatever, you know, philosophical, scientific, whatever pursuits you might have. This is not true. The body has a great deal of wisdom in the ways I just described about how it takes care of things. But when we talk about instinct or intuition or gut sense, science is actually seeing that there's information in the body that um, 
precedes the information the mind knows. I'm reading this book at the moment by Steve, uh, Peter Levine, who's this great um, scientist, basically, I guess, who has developed a work called Somatic Experience that's really very skillful in helping people work and deal with trauma. Um, his first book was called Waking the Tiger, and this book is called In a, In a Hidden Voice? In a Hidden Voice. Um, and it, it's just fascinating. I'm getting to the end of the book, and he's talking about how we've had a misunderstanding of the body and the life of the body and how embodiment, how we need embodiment to be able to live life to the fullest. We need to know our bodies and trust our bodies and listen to our bodies, both for normal functioning, but certainly to heal from trauma or any of those kinds of things that have challenged us. And that there's all this kind of information that the body knows before the brain does. And he's got a whole piece about um, intention and, and movement where the body is actually making these decisions at some visceral level, literally the viscera, making these decisions and they can track this before we consciously know that we're making a decision to move or whatever. So it's just fascinating to see that science is now starting to come to these understandings that as meditators we've known for a long time, there's wisdom in the body. We can use the body and start to trust the body, start to trust our intuition, our instinct, if we've got this wise relationship to the body that knows it, as it is, what, for what it is, not some idea, projection, you know, thought of the body, um, some willed uh, ideal of the body, but actually its felt sense and its clarity. I often say that starting to meditate is kind of like snorkeling. I remember many years ago, the first time I was able to go snorkeling, I was probably in my late 20s, because where I grew up, we didn't, the water was not conducive, cold, a lot of surf, you know, I didn't imagine there was anything much out there, perhaps there was, but I certainly didn't know, and so when I got to somewhere where the water was warm and clear, and saw people snorkeling, I mean, my, my thoughts were, what on earth are they looking at? There's water, and there's the sand or, you know, the rocks or whatever. You know, well, how much can there be to see in water and the bottom of the water, bottom of the sea? Of, so I got a snorkel mask and put it on and swam out, and it was amazing. And I'm sure many of you have had that experience. It's like a whole world opened up that you could have no perception of standing on the shore looking out at the surface of the water. It just doesn't appear. Yet you put the snorkel mask on and there were fish and coral and seaweed and all kinds of things. And it was like flying. It was amazing. Well, this is, this is like Google Earth. You know, instead of going out, you're going, it's the Google inside rather than the Google Earth. Just to actually turn the attention and be willing to sit with this experience of the body and know it, as I keep saying, as it is, and actually stay with it. Because that's our challenge, isn't it? Our mind is so used to flitting off into ideas and thoughts and past and future and worries and fears and hopes and regret. And our practice of mindfulness of the body is, can we just sit and be present for this experience? Not with some agenda of, you know, I want my two cents worth of wisdom or insight or 
you know, I'll get, get something out of this. But just the power of paying attention to the body. So all of our meditation practice begins with this awareness of the body, just as I did in the guided meditation today. Um, we call it the first foundation of mindfulness. There's this very important teaching of the Buddha, the four foundations of mindfulness, and the first one is the body. And it begins with the breath, as we do in meditation, and then opens up to awareness of the sensations of the body, its sort of elemental nature, and goes on to these more and more refined and sophisticated ways of relating to the body, all with a purpose of both landing us here in our direct experience, but also, as I keep saying, this wise relationship to the body where we see there's nothing solid here. There's no Wizard of Oz behind the curtain pulling the levers and pushing the buttons, making everything work. And as hard as you might look, in your direct experience of body and mind, you cannot find anything that's solid, that's permanent, that you can completely control. Of course, minor things, temporary things you control, you know, you can move your arms and legs and do all these kind of things, but you can't stop your body from getting old, no matter what they say on the infomercials or in Hollywood, um, or getting sick, or, it, you know, being injured in certain ways. You know, as I said, we want to take care of the body, but these things are just truths for all of us. And so we start to learn this relationship to the body that sees it as it is. One of the powerful uh, teachings in this um, section on the body in this sutta that I mentioned that's called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, a teaching of the Buddha, is called the 32 Parts of the Body Meditation. And it's a fascinating practice that we don't actually teach that much, but I was so interested in it, I did a self-retreat where I trained myself to do it. And so just a little bit, I just did it for two or three weeks, and you know, it can take months to really deepen in this practice. But in this practice, you go through the different parts of the body, and they only name 32. Of course, there are many more parts of the body, but it's, they got the, the main ones. You start with... Uh, the skin and the, he the hair of the head and the hair of the body and the teeth and the nails. And then you move into you know, the, the lungs and the heart and the blood and the phlegm. And this practice is often called, in Pali, the language these teachings were written down in, asuba practice. And that has been translated at times because it, it points to the phlegm and the blood and the pus the things that are in the body. Everybody has these kind of fluids and, and these, these different aspects to it. It's sometimes been, often actually, been translated as loathsome or disgusting. Oh, this, if you look at the body, oh, this is what you'll see. That always didn't ring true to me because I could never believe that the Buddha wanted to have us believe that the body was disgusting or loathsome. But asuba, lit suba means beautiful. Asuba literally means not beautiful. And I think that's just much more what the Buddha was pointing to. It's, again, this wise relationship where we're not entranced by the body because he was really teaching it as an antidote to our common relationship with the body, which is, you know, we're, we're adorning the body and, and entranced with the body. Even, even, you know, we can have this uh, flip relationship of at times, you know, a, a, 
objecting to and criticizing the body, but we love it, don't we? I mean, it's my body, and you know, there's a, there's a, in some ways we want to love it in the sense of taking care of it, but it can get obsessive or um, be unwise because in that love we try to hold on to the body being a certain way and it is going to change, as I said. So when I did this practice, what I found, this 32 parts of the body practice, very, leads to very state, deep states of concentration because you have to go through this um, 32 parts very systematically. You gradually build up and you, you, at first you're imagining these parts of the body, you just see them in the mind, but you gradually feel into them and, and, and they, they become really alive. You become very aware of them. My experience wasn't at all disgust. It was actually amazement. It was awe. Um, as I said earlier, just to think of, you know, that the gallbladder is doing its thing and the spleen and the digestive thing system is working in this amazing way and it's producing everything I need and balancing all these hormones and chemicals in the body. It's amazing. And it, so it also brought a lot of equanimity. It's kind of like, this is the body. It is just like this. And it also brought a deep sense of interconnectedness because I don't imagine that my spleen is much different from your spleen or your gallbladder or your, you know, what are the, I can't even think of the, some of the words, lungs or something. You know, they're just stuff that we have in the body. So it was really a fascinating practice. So it's important not, again, to use these practices to disengage or to have a kind of, you know, oh, the body is just this very kind of lower chakra thing and I'm a meditator, so I just float above that. Another teacher um, that I like, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, he's a very famed Buddhist scholar, speaks to this um, idea that sometimes can be heard that Buddhism views the body negatively, that, that you know, that's not, it's, there's not, there's this sense, as I said, of loathsomeness or disgust being terms that are used as translation sometimes. He says, although early Buddhists Buddhism is widely believed to take a negative attitude towards the body. The texts of the Pali Canon do not support this belief. So that's the, the words of the Buddha as much as we know that they are. They approach the body both in its positive role as an object of meditation to develop mindfulness, concentration, and the mental powers based on concentration, and in its negative role as an object for unskillful states of mind. Even in, in its negative role, the body is not the culprit. The problem is the mind's attachment to the body. Once the body can be used in its positive role to develop mindfulness and concentration, those mental qualities can be used to free the mind of its attachment to the body. Then, as many a modern meditation master has noted, the mind and body can live in peace. And so that's what we want to cultivate, this wise relationship to the body where we understand its nature. We know it intimately. We have this felt sense of the body and we do that practice in our sitting meditation, through being with the body in walking, um, standing, lying down. We start to know the body in all its forms and to see it as much as possible without filters. When we turn our attention towards the body, we did this evening, sit, close your eyes. What is it that we actually notice? 
It's often very simple things like points of pressure and tingling and vibration and tightness and warmth and coolness. The structure of the body, even something as, as, as known to us as our hands, if you just close your eyes now and kind of hold your right hand out and put your, all your awareness in your right hand. So you can probably feel some tingling in the palm of your hand. But can you clearly feel an outline of the hand? If you touch your fingers so your fingers are all lined up and touching each other, Sometimes it can be hard to tell when one finger ends and another finger begins. Or as the fingers go down into the palm, that that place where the fingers join, can you clearly know that? Or is it just this kind of areas of sensation? Often we can't help but create a mental image of the part of the body that we're being mindful of. But see if you can just feel sensation in this hand. Okay, you can open your eyes. What kind of sensations did you feel? You can just yell them, say them out loud. Hmm? Warmth. Pressure, shakiness, shakiness. Mm-hmm. The, pulse. the pulse, yeah, we often feel the pulse of the body. It's just this kind of elemental experience, isn't it? Warmth, vibration, shakiness, pulsing, vibrating, pressure, lightness. This is what we start to feel. But we take those sensations from the body and make a whole world out of it, don't we? Because it's not just, oh, here's pressure or tightness or warmth. It becomes my knee and it's killing me. And I can't meditate because my knee is killing me. And not only if my knee stopped hurting could I possibly begin to meditate. This is an impediment. It's hopeless. I'll never meditate. Why did I even try? It's never going to work, etc., etc. So we take some tightness in the area of the knee and go from a sense of tightness to this whole story of being a failure as a meditator and a failure in life and, you know, might as well give up and go home here and now. That this is what we do because we're not staying with just the felt experience. And those of you that have done some meditation know that Strong sensation can actually be a great doorway to um, connection and clarity, clear seeing, if we can just stay with it and not tell the story. When we tell the story, we're adding what we call the second arrow. The first arrow is whatever the initial sensation is, and the second arrow, which we can be with, we can know that, you know, it's elemental nature of tingling or vibrating or you know, where the center of it is and its nature and how it moves and shifts. But if we indulge in the second arrow, it's all over. Because then we're we're going, why me? It shouldn't be happening. 
I thought I, fi- I thought I fixed this, or, you know, I need to go get a massage, or this always happens, or, you know, it's not fair, or, you know, it's the chair's fault, or whatever it is. And again, we're just lost in this whole story of identification because we don't stay with just what's happening. We need, do need to know how to work skillfully with pain and difficulty in meditation. As I said, it can be a great... Um, Open, opening for us as we start to have a more skillful relationship and we see that often what's happening in our experience of pain is it's actually the resistance to the pain that's causing most of the problem. It's, we tense up around it. <coughs> you can, <coughs> you know, if say it's a pain in the knee, you can feel yourself like pushing away. It's like if I get further away, I won't be able to feel it. Or we think, I've been mindful of this for five minutes now. Shouldn't it have gone away? You know, so we make, we're in this bargaining relationship with our experience. None of those are helpful. We need to just surrender to this experience. It doesn't mean you know, we try to increase it or we sit in a way that makes it worse or we're not kind to the body. And again, that's the balance we always need to find. But to not use meditation, I call it being on pain patrol. It's like, where's the next problem that I need to get my fire hose of mindfulness and put it out, whether it's in the mind or the body? We need to just accept this is what's happening at the moment. How can I relax and open to this experience? Treat it with some kindness. Treat it with some friendliness. That's what will really help. And so we develop a different relationship to the body where we're curious about it. We're interested in it. What does the body have to tell me? Not again to make a story about me in that, but just to listen, to pay attention, to see as directly as we can. And this relationship to the body enables us to just keep deepening the capacity to be present, to be present for experience. So the meditation is a training for when we are in our lives. Well, when, for when difficult things come. We don't meditate just to become good meditators. That's useless, actually. We train so we can live our lives with a sense of connection, ease, and kindness. Pema Chodron says something like, all of practice is learning to stay. I love that. It's just learning to stay with. What's happening? What's here? What's now? What's true? And uh, the wisdom that's there is if we can listen deeply, listen with kindness to the life of the body in this non-conceptual way, this way of engaging with the body that allows the body to have its life, is kind to the body, but isn't, isn't obsessed with the body or caught up in a story, in, a, in an idea, in a drama around the body. So we know that um, the body can be uh, a source of strong feelings of difficulty, of pain. And if you meditate for any length of time, if you sit in any posture and stay the same for any length of time, it's, it's just usual that some pain will be there. And so, as I said, we could do a whole teaching on working with pain and a skillful relationship to that. But it can also be the source of great pleasant experiences, too pleasant sensations. 
And these can be really helpful in our practice. They give us faith. They make meditation more inviting. But in the same way, we don't want to get identified with that or have the idea that a meditation is only good if we have that kind of experience. Meditation is not about getting any particular kind of experience, but training ourselves to see clearly, to see clearly the nature of the body, and especially to deepen in the insight where we see it's not me in some fundamental way. It's not mine. I don't own it or control it. It's not, doesn't limit me. I am much more than just this body and its physicality. So we have this sense of exploration. And the body is a great teacher of impermanence, this central teaching of the Buddha, that everything changes. And you only have to sit and pay attention for a short time to see that to be true. You know, the breath changes, our relationship to the body changes. We were restless and then we're sleepy. Everything changes. But the body is a great way to learn that truth deeply for ourselves. So as I said, we start to care for the body out of this sense of honoring the body, the life of the body, trusting the wisdom of the body, trusting our intuition. Once we deepen into this felt sense, this knowing of the direct experience of the body, and it kind of becomes, you could almost say, a refuge for us. Our meditation, as we close our eyes and sit quietly, it's just this sense of, ah, here I am, here we are again, connecting and finding our way to what's true in this moment. And of course, the mind jumps in there and wants to tell all kinds of stories about this and that and good and bad and yesterday and tomorrow. And our practice is just to say yes and there's this, this breath, this moment of connection. So it's this doorway, as I said, just like the snorkeling. It's like you put on the mask of mindfulness and this world opens up that we can begin to explore. And it's always there as a kind of litmus test. How am I feeling? We check into the body. What's important to me? Let's just sit with that. Trust what comes not out of the thinking and trying to figure things out, but out of the silence that we cultivate by allowing the body to come into stillness, to come into quiet, to come into its sense of settledness. So the body is a teacher, the body is a doorway, the body is a place of practice and a teacher for us, teacher of impermanence, a teacher of insight, teacher of the possibility of peace and ease here and now, not some future elevated state, but actually the possibility here and now. And it enables us to feel alive, to be embodied. There's this sort of truth that we can move into as we understand and and penetrate the life of the body in this felt sense kind of way. And it will then support us in all our other activities, whether it's actually using the body in exercise or physicality, moving around, all the other activities of the day and our interactions with people. If we can just have that sense of 
the body as our reference point, the body as friend, the body as um, this doorway to fully present, fully awake, fully alive. So I'm curious, after speaking for this long about the body, what your relationship to your body is, how that might have changed through your meditation practice, and what particular practices have you found to be helpful to bring this kind of aliveness of the body um, into your practice, into your life? So, is there someone? Could you take a microphone? Are you, uh, maybe you're not a volunteer. Is there? Not you, I am now. Okay. <laughs> Do you know how to turn it on? Is there? Sean is going to run up. That's a good thing about this. He'll be here in a moment. Yeah, I think there's two switches that need to go in different directions. Thanks, Sean. Do you want to do the mic or you want to? Sure. Okay, thanks. So, anyone willing to share with the group? What's your relationship to the body? Here's one over here on the side. Thanks, Sean. Hi, my Hi. name is Sam. Sam. Uh, you have a wonderful energy. It's like, it's very quiet. Very quiet, but very intriguing. So, but anyway, uh, it was interesting. I would walk on the hill close to where I lived. Mm -hmm. And coming down the hill uh, one day, I found myself just walking like really slow. Just really kind of slow and just really slow steps and it was weird because I kept looking around to make sure nobody was watching because <laughs> it felt kind of strange. It's okay. Were you in Marin? If you're in Marin, that would be okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in Marin. So <laughs> but it, it, it brought a certain um, just like presence and mm -hmm. clarity mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and a certain kind of peace yes. to me. And then later I found that uh, it, as a matter of fact, I was in here, and, and the gentleman was speaking about a walking meditation, mm -hmm. and he was. It was the exact same thing that I did. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I did it without knowing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, without having, without anyone having told me. Yeah, yeah. So, my point was that there there was something very natural coming from the land, and yeah. and there was a wisdom that my body just. Got in, you know. Whenever I took my head out of it and got out of the way, yeah, it just knew, and it just it went and started to do this thing that was, you know, something obviously very natural because it's, other people were doing it, and I didn't even, you know. That's so that's great. You're a natural meditator. Yeah. So I think, well, I think we all are. I think I think yeah. our, our our bodies know. We know. We know a lot of things if yes. we, you know, when we're. And, uh, you know, as you say, often we have to get out of the way and just trust the body that, that if we pay attention, the body will often want to slow down. Yeah. We are so busy most of the time. Yeah. And to actually just slow down a little, to just pay attention, to not have a big agenda about getting somewhere, really very helpful. So, as I said, this is not about what, just what we do in our sitting meditation, but really to bring this sense of, of connectedness into other activities as well can be really helpful. Yeah. And walking meditation is a big part of our practice and it often involves slowing down and that can be a helpful thing just to 
give ourselves the time and space to be able to pay attention. We're usually tumbling forward and rushing about so much. But it doesn't have to mean we slow down. You can be mindful at any speed, but a little bit of slowing down makes us realize, oh yeah, I, I have a body. It isn't just a vehicle to carry my brain around. You know, it actually has a, a function. I can pay attention to it. So thank you. Thank you. There's one. Oh, yes. Hi. Hi. Um, coincidentally, I too am taking the 32 body part uh, class right now in Santa Cruz. Oh, and last Bob? Yeah. And, oh, great. and last weekend, or no, last Friday, we went to Anatomy the Lab. Anatomy Lab. I went yes. last year. <laughs> And there were three cadavers, and yes. it was really interesting. Yes. And, uh, yeah, to give dimension. To, you know, I've always seen pictures of the insides of yes. bodies, but it really gave a, to hold a liver, how giant it yes. is. And yes. it was, anyway, it was oh, pretty amazing. <laughs> so uh, Bob Stahl, who's one of the teachers who teaches here, is very, he's one of the teachers who does teach this practice and does this great class down in Santa Cruz on the 32 parts of the body. And, Last year he invited us as teachers, and what teachers do for fun is go to an anatomy lab. So I went last year, and for the same, I held someone's skull and brain in my hands. And it's a powerful thing. And, and it was really a practice to not to distance, you know, to see it just as a thing. But me too, you know, that could be me. My body is just like that. And so to stay with that and practice with those bodies was really powerful. So us Buddhists do strange things like that. I remember for when it was my, I married my our 20th wedding anniversary, my husband said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to go to Body Worlds down in L.A. And so for our 20th anniversary, we drove down to L.A. and saw Body Worlds, which is this thing of um, these corpses, these dead people that have been plasticized and put into, they're all opened up and everything. So that's what we did for our 20th wedding anniversary. <laughs> I have to think of something for our 30th. Yeah, there's one right at the front here. So it was Lisa, was it? Yeah. So um, I think what I'm thinking about when I think of the body um, is I'm present to the impermanence of mm. uh, my physical, my, my physical self, not only me, but just I'm confronted with a lot of illness right now oh, in my family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I came tonight actually because I was confronted with my father-in-law dying of cancer, mm. my father having a melanoma, my mm. husband having a chronic cough. Mm. And, you know, I'm an athlete and I'm currently functioning, um, but I'm really present to the impermanence yeah. of the body yeah. and having a lot of aversion mm -hmm. and trying to fix those people that I love yes. and understanding that that is not my job yes. and that, I, that this is like, this is, this is the, true heart of the teaching yes i've been practicing this and i understand that this is number like it's up there on the suffering list yes. we're all gonna die and yeah. it's looking like illness yeah. and it's like okay so how do i how do i find ease in and how do i let go like it's truly letting go yeah. and saying okay staying with you said you know mm -hmm. we learn to stay mm-hmm Boy, I have such a version. Yeah, no, it's true. It's crazy. And so it, I'm sure your experience is, is uh, many people can relate. And it's really, you know, the practice is finding, again, this balance. The compassion, which is what you're feeling, you're feeling with someone suffering. And there is this movement of wanting to fix. And of course, we want to help. 
anyone we can, you know, that we love especially, but we realize that we can't, that there are limitations. You know, we do what we can and then we have to accept. For all of us, this is inevitable, old age, sickness, death. Um, some variation of that, ultimately, with death for all of us. Hands up, who's not going to die? You know, we, it, 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 it's ev- oh, someone at the back there, okay. <laughs> Tell us your secret as we go out. Um, and this is why one of the things I love about this practice is it turns us towards these difficult truths. It doesn't try to whitewash or say, believe in this and everything will be okay. It says, look and see. This will happen to you. It will happen to your loved ones. How do you keep your heart open while you're going through this really challenging time? Because we want to fix it, we'll be averse to it, we'll be afraid. And the practice of the body really is, can I stay with this? And give these people, our loved ones, the biggest gift we can give them of presence of not rejecting, of not being afraid, of not resisting, but actually I'm here with you whatever this journey is going to look like. And it's a huge practice, it's not easy. But if we start from this awareness of the body and this build this trust, this sense of presence, we can know we can do that for ourselves and we know we can then give it to others. And you know, there's not not some miracle or perfect We'll go through challenges, but we have this basic sense of trust, of presence. And it is a refuge. It's a huge refuge. And we can really come to know that for ourselves. Again, the Buddhist teaching is not some idea, but ehipasiko, come and see for yourself that this is true. That's the litmus test. Okay, thank you. Thank you all. We've come to the end of our time together. So I really uh, appreciate you making the trip out here um, to spend two hours listening to, practicing the Dhamma. Hope it was helpful. Hope something that I said was helpful to you. And I hope that you drive home safely. When you leave Spirit Rock, please turn right out of our driveway. I will be right behind you, and I'll honk my horn if you don't, because it's dangerous. So please do that. And uh, what's next week? Do we know, Sean? Oh, right, Heather Sundberg, one of our younger teachers, will be here, so I encourage you to come. Good night. Take care. Be well.